You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili, McKinsey's Publications Director, and I have a confession to make. Today I am really overtired. <laughs> Nonetheless, I plan to have a pretty productive day through some combination of caffeine, maybe a little bit of sugar, hopefully the odd adrenaline rush. So I'm doing what most of us do, which is powering through the fatigue. But is my lack of sleep having more of an effect on my performance than I realize? We're going to talk about sleep and other risks to executive well-being posed by today's relentlessly fast and furious work culture. We'll also discuss some techniques that high-performing business leaders use to manage those risks successfully. Joining me in New York today are Manish Chopra, a partner in McKinsey's New York office and author of the book, The Equanimous Mind, which chronicles the impact of meditation on his personal and professional life. Welcome, Manish. Thank you, glad to be here. We also have Els Vanderhelm, a specialist in McKinsey's Amsterdam office who advises McKinsey clients and consultants on the importance of sleep in organizations. Welcome, Els. Thank you. And Caroline Webb, a former partner in McKinsey's London office and an external senior advisor to McKinsey on leadership. Caroline is also CEO of Seven Shift, an advisory firm that uses behavioral science to help clients improve their professional lives. And she is author of the new book, How to Have a Good Day. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. <laughs> I want to start by asking each of you to give a few words of context on what seems to be a burgeoning interest in wellness, and particularly in wellness in the workplace. People have been griping about the accelerating pace of working life for 150 years, basically since industrialization and probably before. So why now? Why this intensifying focus now on how best to cope in the workplace? And else, let's start with you and what you've learned from your research on sleep. Even though people used to be tired for a long time already, I do think it's changed in that with the new technology, there's fewer moments in the day where we really take a break, have some self-reflection, um, and take it easy. Um, when I ask people in my workshops where their phone is at night, 80% says it's in their bedroom, and over half of them check their email in bed. Um, so I think there's definitely something there that has changed compared to, say, 20 years ago. I think we're also much more aware of what the effect is of a healthy lifestyle, so that in general we know we should eat more healthy um, and spend more time exercising, and I think mindfulness, sleep are kind of like the next things to focus on. Um, and finally, I think companies are starting to realize that they have this, these highly educated employees um, that are very capable, but that's not enough. You need to make sure that they are engaged, happy, healthy. And what about some of the research on brain science? Has that illuminated the effects of well-being on performance in a way that businesses can sort of actually see? Caroline, do you want to take that one? Oh, enormously so. I would say everything that Els has just said is absolutely right, that the shift in uh, technology has led to our always-on lives, and, and that's obviously raised awareness of the impact of, uh, of, of executive well-being. But I think it's also the fact that the evidence is just much sharper and more compelling. I think that the fact that you have statistically robust studies that show that 
um, that when you are sleep deprived that it affects your cognitive functioning and your emotional resilience. Um, there's studies um, across the board that show effectively that what you're doing is you're depriving the part of your brain that is more sophisticated, what I call the deliberate system, um, it, you're making it very difficult for it to do its job fully. For data-driven, evidence-hungry, uh, senior people who need to know that there's a real reason for shifting behaviour, um, the, the, the scientific evidence really helps. Manish, your journey seems to have been more a personal one. Um, we were talking before this podcast started about the broadening of meditation in the culture. Do you have thoughts on that that you'd like to share? Sure. So I think it's interesting what we're talking about, and I think you know the word wellness and well-being are used interchangeably often. I think maybe what we are talking about here is more along the lines of well-being. Wellness often tends to focus more on the physical aspects of health uh, and lifestyle, which is also very important. I I do feel that what is what is changing is that um, both people's expectations for how effective they need to be have gone up because they realize that you know the standards of the past are not going to be sufficient in the future right i mean take for example even health people are more focused on that than they were 20 years ago look at the rise of the equinoxes of the world uh, in our culture i think the same way people are realizing that just like health is important to uh, personal effectiveness from the standpoint of lifestyle and um, retaining longevity, people are realizing that your mind is the other asset that you've got to continue to invest in. So meditation, which is interestingly grew more out of uh, the Eastern cultures focused more on um, liberating oneself from suffering, has found a very interesting audience in um, the professional world where it has a lot of other side benefits which are of value to the time-strapped executive whether it's stress levels, whether it's managing attention, whether it's speed of decision-making, resilience, and so on and so forth. So I do feel that the time is right for these kinds of forces to converge to allow, and I'd even say doesn't have to be an executive, any high-intensity professional to focus on these effectiveness habits or different tools that would make their mind a more healthy asset than we've been able to do in in the past. Do you think that some of the attention to meditation is driven by Silicon Valley and sort of luminaries in the Silicon Valley who have taken up meditation like Steve Jobs for example? It's not just Silicon Valley right you know Oprah Winfrey is a known meditator, Ariana Huffington, mm -hmm. Congressman Tim Ryan, um, you know the U.S. Army is, you know, using it for PTSD. Um, you know, Bill George, who used to be a CEO of Medtronic, is now a professor at Harvard. So I, I actually think it's been a confluence of things. I think there are people on the West Coast, f for sure, who have jumped into this a little bit faster. The tech industry probably uh, found a way into this sooner because there's probably even more information overload there. Um, and that has made it a little bit more acceptable, frankly, I actually feel uh, there are a lot of closeted meditators out there in the corporate world that um, feel some sense of um, uneasiness about being open about it. Right. So I myself meditated for a couple of years, as I mentioned to you. And talking about that in the workforce was not something that I thought would 
enhance my professional stature particularly. I was kind of a closet meditator, in fact. Um, and that leads to a question about pockets of resistance, both at yep. the individual level and at the <coughs> institutional level, to promoting this kind of well-being effort. And could, maybe we could talk about some of the typical barriers that you encounter and how you've seen executives navigate those barriers successfully. I think there's a, a mindset shift that happens when people start to take this seriously, which is to go from seeing the investment of time in sleep, exercise, mindfulness as a cost to thinking of it as an investment. And in fact, it's not just an inv investment that pays back long term, it's an investment that pays back, all the evidence suggests, really rather immediately. Yeah. And the idea of that shift that this is not downtime, it's simply investing in your ability to have more uptime is something which I've seen at the heart of everybody who makes a difference in the way that they're living their lives, but also in the way that their teams around them are living their lives. One executive that I was working with said that it, she'd always thought of these sorts of, um, of investing in herself as something which was nice to have. It was always lower down the list than everything that was going on for her at work and with her family. And then she realized that that, that investment in herself allowed her to be more effective in everything else she was doing and that was really what shifted her approach to it and actually made her take time each day to invest in herself in that way. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I boil it down to two things and I think both of those are perceived uh, barriers. One is lack of time and the second is lack of belief. And the lack of time is I think Carolyn just you know pointed out that it's a little bit of a chicken and egg and frankly it's a uh, it's a, the ROI on that time is really high, but you don't know that yet because you, what you're lacking is the second thing, which is the lack of belief. So just like you talk to people who are, you know, uh, who exercise regularly, I mean, they couldn't go without it for a long enough period of time without feeling uh, somewhat something was missing, right? And same is true for when you invest in these activities that enhance your personal effectiveness, whether it's through meditation or, or, or exercise or sleep management. Um, but the science is there. I think the role models which you were talking about earlier are a big, um, a big factor in overcoming skepticism because if they see, you know, um, a relevant person or a senior person uh, speak more openly about this, um, people tend to pay attention. Yeah, the experiential benefit. And you described yourself as a skeptic of meditation prior to trying it, correct? It was an uh, unexpected uh, uh, arrival at a 10-day at a retreat that, uh, that changed my mind about it. Ah, so it was, a, was there a particular catalyst? Was that retreat the particular catalyst yes. for you to start? There wasn't a business problem that you were trying to solve Ironically, explicitly? Ironically, I, I went to it because my wife found a location that was offering the executive version of the course. And so I thought I was going to have some networking opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, I got uh, suckered great. into it. And I thought I wouldn't last even a day and uh, ended up uh, coming out a different person the other end. That's I fantastic. Do I, I do think that there are two classic ways that people get into this yeah. state of mind about the fact that it's worth investing in your sleep, your exercise, your mindfulness. And the, the two archetypes that I've seen are one, 
you dip your toe in the water. You're, put, you're convinced enough by the evidence that you do what you're saying, Manisha, and you decide you're going to try a little bit, and then your brain gets that nice feedback loop, which is something we know is needed to develop a new habit, and there you go. The other classic uh, archetype is a crisis of some sort, mm. some kind of transformational experience, and hitting the wall, hitting the buffers, you know, some, some major... Uh, personal um, incident in your life and for, for me it was definitely a health crash where I, mm. I suddenly realized that my body was not somehow completely separate from my brain and vice <laughs> versa so yeah it, that was for me the big turning point it wasn't the same as a retreat but effectively I was forced to retreat and, mm. and think about what it takes to be really effective when you're working very hard <laughs> That's interesting. Else, you've done some research on the effects of sleep deprivation on performance. Um, would you like to talk a bit about those? Because you had some interesting comparisons between, you know, sleep depri deprived folks and drunkenness, etc. <laughs> I mean, there's many things that happen when you don't sleep enough. You can think about all the things that happen in your body. Um, so your blood pressure going up, you're responding differently to sugar, and you can imagine what that means for your health more longer term. Um, but when you look at the brain, there's so many different functions that you need to master every day at work. You need to be able to focus your attention and not be distracted by other things. Um, and exactly as Caroline said, the front part of your brain, kind of the best part of your brain that makes you you and makes you smart, is the most vulnerable to sleep deprivation. The rest of your brain can cope relatively well, it's also suffering, but the front of your brain is, is the first one to get hit. And that also leads to us not being aware that we're not functioning as well as we are supposed to. And because that part of your brain also gives you that insight. And that's why I think a lot of people think they can just get away with it and they're functioning perfectly fine where actually they're not. I'm one example. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there are these studies where they have two groups of people. One group gets alcohol. The other poor guys um, get sleep deprived. And you can compare their performance on a host of different tasks and kind of try to equate, you know, when are they equal. And you see if someone skips a whole night of sleep, you're legally drunk. Um, sure. You're basically at 0.1% blood alcohol level, which is double the the legal limit for driving. And I often say this in my workshop where we look at, okay, what, what is everyone's sleep debt? What did you lose out on sleep this week compared to what you actually need? And there's then so many people that are at eight hours or more. And I'm telling them, like, that is as if you're showing up drunk at work. And we just don't seem to realize that. Um, it would be way more fun to actually show up drunk at work um, <laughs> <laughs> instead of showing up that sleep deprived. Right. And I often, uh, I often refer to you know, the series Mad Men taking place in the 60s where you look at them in the office and they're drinking and smoking in the office. And you're like, what are you doing? You're at work. But we're actually doing the exact same thing right now. We're showing up just as, as bad in terms of the performance. Um, we're not nearly ha having as much fun, though. So. And we're also in <laughs> denial about it, right? Even yeah. a statistic about the percentage of executives who said that I think sleeplessness fine. has really no effect on performance. No, exactly. Right. And we looked specifically at leadership performance. Mm -hmm. 
um, the behaviors that we already know are really critical to leadership or a healthy organization, what effects um, does sleep have on them? And each of those you can relate to needing sleep before you can actually be a good leader. Whereas if you ask leaders themselves, are you sleeping enough? The answer is no. Are you happy with your quality of sleep? No. Is this affecting your leadership performance? No. It's <laughs> like, um, <laughs> that's, that's scientifically impossible. How much sleep is the right amount of sleep? What is the guideline? On average, the population needs about eight hours, but it's a normal curve, so you could be one of the lucky ones that is fine on seven or six and a half, or unlucky that you need much more than eight. Um, I usually tell people to try to figure out how much do they sleep on vacation when there's no stress to mask you know, how much you need, um, and how much do you sleep on vacation when you actually take the time to disconnect um, and sleep. And how do <coughs> approaches like caffeine affect cognitive behavior during a sleepless night, for example? Does caffeine actually give you the temporary boost that you're seeking? It depends on the types of tasks. It definitely helps in your subjective feeling of feel, feeling you know, less tired, your attention levels definitely go up. Um, but there are a lot of other things that happen when you're sleep deprived. So it's harder to think more creatively and come up with new solutions. And caffeine doesn't help you overcome that deficit. Caffeine has a really long half-life, so it's not out of your body that quickly. And when you don't get enough sleep, your sleep gets a little bit more efficient at night. So don't go crazy, it doesn't actually fix everything, but it gets a little bit more efficient with a little bit less light sleep and more deep sleep. However, when you've had caffeine, that doesn't happen because your brain has been tricked into thinking that it hasn't been awake for that long and then you don't get that kind of better recovery sleep. You know, one of the things that you guys were talking about earlier that I wanted to comment on and I'll give you a, a one-person view on this equation. Um, I think there is an issue, at least in our culture, that less sleep is like a badge of honor. Yes. So never mind people are not admitting that it's not impacting their executive functioning, but I think for some people, at least when I was early on in my career, you'd see people walking around like, okay, so till what time were you in the office? Oh, I was here till 3 a.m. And the thought going through my mind was a kind of a combination of sympathy and frankly some sense of like, you need to get a life. As opposed to if you're expecting some kind of a reward from me, an acknowledgement of superior, superior being who can operate on three hours of sleep, they weren't getting it. Um, and I think to the point we were talking about the closeted meditators and so forth, I think there is still a little bit of a shame I see people experience when they are admitting it's a form of weakness that they need a life, right? Which I think we need to overcome that in general because otherwise all of these things are theoretically good and maybe some people who are higher performers or senior enough to be able to say, okay, I deserve balance in life because people who early on starting on in high intensity professions feel like this is the price to pay to survive professionally. I think that's one. I think the second thing you guys talking about the balance in these things, I feel like I've been an interesting experiment in all of this myself. Like, you know, I was the guy who had trouble getting out of bed in the morning at 7. And my teams would joke about the fact that a 9 a.m. meeting could be too early for Manish. Um, started meditating, and the whole equation is turned upside down. I'm, I'm now the early morning guy and have, you know, hard time sleeping beyond 6 a.m. even if I tried to. 
on the one hand, I think the baseline point is I completely agree with. There is some critical number that you don't want to fall below and then you're running the risk of uh, deterioration in all departments of your life. Um, on the other hand, I do feel that there is ability to manage how much awake rest you can have versus sleeping rest. And what I mean by awake, some people call meditation awake rest, r restful awakeness or whatever, um, is ultimately, again, not as a scientist, but as a practitioner, I feel that all of these things are targeted towards slowing down the mind or quietening the mind to a point where it can relax, restore, repair, whatever. I think there's a general point that it's good to start to tune in to your body and your mind and what it needs because we are all a little different. Right. So I would have no shame in admitting that uh, I need eight and a half hours sleep. I kind of always have. And throughout my whole career at McKinsey, I needed to make sure I got that. And I prioritized, uh, I prioritized it um, and uh, managed to make my way through 12 years at the firm without anyone thinking that that was too terrible an idea. Um, but I know that there are other people who need even more and there are people who really can get by with less and there is a little bit of me that thinks ah oh, you know I wish I wish that I were like that but I've I think that I've made my peace with who I am and what I need and for me you know exercise we haven't talked a lot about exercise mm -hmm. but exercise was I've never have been a gym person I've been one of those people who've had who's had dozens of gym memberships that have been incredibly wasted money. <laughs> it was only when I found ways to build it into my everyday life, uh, making sure that I, I walked to a meeting, for example, or just even walk around as I'm doing a conference call, just getting a little bit of activity and becoming more adept at noticing when I needed that, that physical boost, um, which typically for me is about every 90 minutes, I at least need to stand up and kind of shake myself. And, and do a tiny little bit of activity. So I think just being no, no, becoming better at noticing when you're worn down, when you need to take a break, when you need to take a walk, um, when you need to slow down, is really central to getting this right. If executives can only do one thing every day, if they have one thing that they're willing to commit to every day as a kind of starting point into addressing the mind-body balance, what would you recommend that that one thing be? <laughs> That's really tough. <laughs> it's super tough. I have one. Easy one. Don't check email before um, 7 a.m. or some, whatever you are, when you wake up, maybe two hours, right? I say 7 a.m. Maybe that's too <laughs> late for... Not a problem for me. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, so set yourself a goal to not check your email for the first two hours you're awake. And I think that alone, f it feels to me, could change your effectiveness because I actually use the time to first of all meditate or exercise because it's kind of this virtuous thing we're talking about I say if I'm going to force myself to stick to certain habits I can do that first thing in the morning it's a lot easier to control your day in the morning versus in the evening when you have client dinners and things like that or you're traveling um, and it also allows me to spend time thinking about how I want to use the day I would broaden that to acknowledge that for people who are vampires like me, who are oh. not morning people, yeah. um, that the argument for going offline is very, very strong. The timing it, may be It might be different. different. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and I, but <coughs> I, I absolutely wholeheartedly second the idea of, of being more deliberate about taking yourself offline for periods of for time, period especially of time. when you want to do your biggest thinking and your deepest thinking.
um, whether it's about thinking about what the day holds for you as you head into it, or even you know, whenever your peak time is cognitively, just thinking about how can you really help yourself be at your best in that time. And that usually means taking yourself out of the maelstrom and After, giving exactly. yourself that <coughs> space. Yeah, absolutely. But I think sleep, I mean, I, have to, I was asked exactly this question. I was doing a talk at Google last week. And um, I was asked, you know, if you could argue for any one single change, it would be work out how much sleep you actually need and make sure that you get it. So Els is nodding frantically at that. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think what a lot of people do is not get that amount of sleep during the week and then think they can just catch up on the weekend, um, which doesn't actually work. I think my advice would be also sleep-related. Stop snoozing. I think about 60 or 70% of the people I see snooze. So that's setting your alarm in the morning, waking up, falling back asleep, it goes off again, etc. So you wake up multiple times. It's like the opposite of what your brain wants. It wants to wake up naturally. Uh, and instead, you make it wake up by sound multiple times in a row, really hurting the quality of your sleep. So if I could tell people to stop doing one thing, it's snoozing. Manish, Els, Caroline, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. You've really given us a lot to talk about and think about. For more on the topics of executive well-being and organizational performance, visit mckinsey.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.